0: Hi, I'm Tim Rood, Head of Government and Industry Relations here at CITUS AMC. Welcome to the latest episode of On the Hill. So, my very special guest today is none other than uh, Michael Bright. Most of you, I'm sure, already know Michael, so I'll jump first and foremost into what's most interesting these days, which is, you know, Michael, it's been like a pandemic or two since we got together, so naturally, you know, I want to find out what you've been up to personally during the pandemic. Obviously, we'll get into all the professional stuff in a minute but i mean you know like what are you binge watching Mm -hmm. new hobbies bad habits you know what's been keeping you sane for the last
1: gosh 18 months Heck, yeah 20 months yeah it's two years so it's funny because you know we had um our our vegas conference is you know our this large gathering is about eight thousand people in vegas and our, our we had one in february of 2020 and there was you know kind of talk about this virus in China but we really some people were worried but some people didn't know if it was just going to be kind of like uh, some of the other SARS uh, epidemics where it sort of stay centralized in Asia and so we went off with the conference and we ended up having it it was record numbers 8300 participants at the Aria Hotel and it's just this great big thing and then like literally on the flight back you know people are starting to wear masks and news is starting to blow up and we like kind of just did it and then come back from this giant conference and everyone goes into their holes and instantly, you know, we're pivoting to begging the, uh, you know, the Fed to relook at TALF and to, and to look at all the assets it should include. Yeah. And that's, so it was a really, yeah. really whipsawed, you know, event. And um, we often come back from Vegas exhausted and really tired and take kind of a week, uh, to recuperate, but we were on the phone with, um, you know, Karen Pence and everybody else at the TALF team and talking to them about operational issues and, and asset class dynamics um, right away. So that was really strange. And I, I, and I don't really think anybody knew you know where it was going to head. We quickly settled into this sort of strange calm of, you know, hiding out in our houses, but trying to figure out how to do work. So um, I don't know. We've done a number of things. I commend you on the podcast approach. We we've done a couple podcasts ourselves. So we got a little bit into the podcast business, Um, Learned to cook a lot of different stuff. I've been kind of innovative in the cooking thing Um, indulged in, in more hobbies. So I've had some, you know, you have a little bit more free time when you're not with that, the commute gone on both ways and in the middle of the day, getting laundry and dishes done, you know, instead of having that big pile at work. So it helps go to the gym. So I think you and I were talking a little bit about MMA and kickboxing and that's kind of a thing okay. I discovered uh, again, been a long time and my body feels old every minute of the 20 years since the last time I did this, especially since I'm working out with these Serbian, these Serbian guys who are these like champion Serbian kickboxers and they're like 25 and 27. And which was about the age that I last, did something like this, so it's that's been humbling, but also addictive, and so it's been a lot of fun. And I don't know, uh, staying sane with all that stuff. I mean, we could talk about Netflix shows uh, all you want. I mean, uh, Handmaid's Tale that got me through a lot of. Oh yeah, yeah, I was that just, was a good one. Yeah. I think season five's coming on in that t- soon too. So, you know, it's been a journey. But I'm in the office right now. We're looking to reopen. We're going to probably reopen soft open o- soft open on March second. And a little bit more of a formal open April 1. And then knock on wood that, you know, the variants have sort of stabilized in a lower state and we can just kind of learn to live with it and get back to usual. But it's been weird. It's been a I, weird couple of years.
0: I highly recommend you connect with Pete Mills from the NBA. I've mentioned before, like Pete and I somehow developed like a, a knitting circle during COVID uh, swapping recipes, which were like Netflix recommendations. And he turned me on to one, which was one entertaining as hell. Um, and it was prescient. If we came out in like 2015, it's called the last man on earth. Okay. And uh, it's a guy from SNL and it's all about a pandemic that basically kills everybody <laughs> in the world to anything. Yeah. And he's, you know, going around looting museums and, uh, driving like, uh, uh, stealth bombers down K street and all <laughs> the, all, all the dumb crap that, you know, you or I would do if we had the opportunity. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's
0: fantastic. And it's, it's Equally disturbing as as it is uh, entertaining. Like I yes. said, I, I,
1: I didn't really want to live in a time where zombie apocalypse movies you know <laughs> made sense to me. Um, but you know, I, I what is it? What what is this phrase from uh, the, uh, the Hobbit? You can't choose the times that you get to live in. You can only choose what you do with the time. So that's I guess the approach. Kind of look at the positive.
0: Woody Harrelson for president. Zombieland. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Right.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. <laughs> thanks for that. And for those who uh, don't know uh, Michael quite as well, so Michael, you were the the interim president of GINI from what 2017 ish to I think early 2019. Yeah, uh, Trump nominated you right to serve as the permanent president, but you were never confirmed because you bounced over to become the CEO of the Structured Finance Association, which I would say that was a strong move. Uh, you see the what the vision, the strategy advocacy work of the securitization industry, which is a particular interest to, to me and, and certainly to Citus AMC. Um, and I know you entered the government around, I guess it was late 2000s um, at the OCC. Yeah. And I certainly know the work you were doing on Corker, Bob was working for Senator Corker on Corker Warner and all that fun stuff. Um, I'm sure there's no shortage of stories around how that all played out. For better or worse. Those Mostly could all, for worse.
1: Everything you mentioned could be a zombie apocalypse podcast if you wanted. But uh, yeah, no, I came to DC in 2008. I, I I traded interest rate derivatives kind of at the start of my career. So I, I grew up as an analyst at Countrywide's on their servicing hedge. So hedging MSRs with like swaps, swaptions, euro dollar futures and treasury futures and some MBS. And then this product called CMM, which is this, this really sort of niche technical mortgage product that just kind of. It talked. The duration of it matches the intercoupon malt between the two TBAs around par, so it's kind of a a little bit of a weedy product. But we use that to hedge there. And then I got I moved to Wacuvia on their on their investment bank on the sell side, making markets in CMM and TBA options. And I did oh. that for a while. Those those products you're your structurally short convexity in the mortgage market, which is a really crappy place to be in the financial crisis that's driven by. Mortgage volatility. So that was a wild ride in 2008. Managed to stay afloat, but the bank did not. So I lost my job in, in 2008. And it kind of been burned out, really, to be honest, from the crisis and the markets and all that stuff. And so made a life move to Washington. And I've had fortunate opportunities to do a lot of really interesting things. Here, you know, the, the time on the hill is great. Jenny was, was a very rewarding experience. I mean, I, I really, to be honest, I, you know, the nomination process is also worth an entire podcast. But, uh, you know, went through the um, the committee hearing, which was rewarding and very and very fun, especially having gotten to work with those senators before and their staff. So that that was a really great experience, grueling, um, oh. but um, but a great good experience. And then, you know, inside baseball, but that was before the 60 vote threshold or the uh, there was a six vote threshold had gone away for some noms, but there was still a 30 hour debate time. Um, and so there was like a lot of trains kind of getting backed up. And in the first couple of years, of the Trump administration, McConnell really made a focus on getting judges through. Yep. And so um, it was kind of like if you weren't a federal judge, you had to wait a very long time to get a floor vote, especially when it was still 30 hours. They, they did change that rule, I think, to two hours uh, the year after but I was in the job and I was doing it in an, in an acting capacity. So I just kind of knew that my train wasn't going to come for a while. And then this thing kind of came along and there's not that many really high caliber trade associations in DC. So one of them comes along with an opening and it draws on a lot of the stuff that you've done in the past. It really wasn't much of a, it was a pretty easy decision. So it's been great. It's been rewarding here, really supportive board, really engaged membership, 370 corporate institutional members, thousands of individual members, Um, We have our conference. We also do that, you know, all this, the standard trade advocacy type work and been here now for three years and really excited for the future. I think there's just a lot of cool stuff always going on and it's a great, it's a great seat to have and to partake in all the debates that we're engaged in.
0: I hope you're right. I'm terrified half the time. So um, I I, I could use the positive energy. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone who got burned out in the private sector deciding to come to DC during
1: a (laughs) global financial crisis to chill out. So I commend you on that. Uh, (laughs) Well, it was really to try and make sure we never had one again. (laughs) So, But that was a little bit more too optimistic of me, but it was where the energy was. I'll tell you that. I mean, being a derivatives trader out of work in 2008, like that's like being a buggy whip maker right when the first model T's were coming online. I mean, you're just not really going to find a lot of work. So if, if no other reason it was necessity and, you know, a little bit of optimism about what we could do. So, but, but this is of interest. I mean, it's a fun place because the intellectual dialogue here is very, is very, very good. I mean, I've always thought highly of, you know, the, the the discussion and the dialogue. And if you do stuff, it's very scalable. So it's, it scales, more than you than I think people in town even really realize or have adequate humility for I mean the decisions that are made here do really have ripple effects I mean, they do set the corners of what the press talks about and what the debate is and you know what policy options are, are available and millions of lives end up getting touched by it and I think it's actually worth folks in town taking a minute remembering that because you know it's it's exhilarating but it needs to be humbling a little bit too so anyway it's 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 fun it's a journey I'm not going anywhere i still have a lot of things i want to do so and you get to meet folks like yourself yeah
0: no i've same here brother i mean uh yeah there's definitely no shortage of uh energy and once you kind of figure out that you're playing three-dimensional chess and not checkers um and understand the board it's all you know it's kind of like anything else in life when when the world's conspiring against you it's god-awful but sometimes when you get the wind at your back and conspiring for you and you get forward progress on some of these things that, as you said, you know, affect on millions of peoples of lives yeah. in any number of ways. Sometimes it's overwhelming and you've been in the hot seat a lot longer uh, than I have been, but at least in, in the policymaking context, I'm more of a, like an odds maker. So yeah. not, not quite as exciting. <laughs> but that does bring it to back to, I mean, the securitization side of things. So you know, as you and I have talked about before, the government footprint in, in housing, you know, continues to grow. The CFPB, you know, continues to expand its theories, they're making new rules that affect mortgage originations and servicing. You're back into this like hyper vigilant enforcement regime, kind of like back in the in the Cordray days. Um, so that ties into, you know, you risk aversion. You've got private label mortgage backed securities have gone from whatever, 50% of the market in 2006 to low single digits today. So I, I guess my my opening question would be, you know, given, you know, you run the Structured Finance Association, PLMBS, Private Label Mortgage Backed Securities, naturally fall under your purview and charter. So mm-hmm. what's, what's your take on the future of the the non-agency, call it QM, non-securitization, or non-QM securitization markets?
1: Yeah, well, look, I mean, it definitely has a role to play and it, um, it, it can augment, The FHA, Fannie and Freddie, and it and it has for a very long time. Um, Yes, the numbers that you're talking about pre-crisis were very, very large, um, mind-boggling numbers. I don't think um, anybody's prognosticating that we're going to be back there anytime soon. But I, you know, originators have appetite to not be beholden to only three organizations to sell their mortgages to. Um, They want to have partnerships. They want to be innovative in their secondary marketing structures. They want to forge relationships with investors who understand um, the way that they originate, you know, do quality control service mortgages. And so it's, it's very natural. There's there's nothing unnatural about um, the energy behind you know the origination and servicing market coupled with the capital markets um, and, cap- and and investors from asset managers and insurance companies and all, and everything in between you know getting together to to arrange the structuring and sale and trading of pls um, i I think that so I, so I think that there 's always going to be a role for this market, and I think that in the mortgage space there 's a natural appetite from everybody who originates mortgages to have it. Uh, but there are some movements that um, the FHFA has done recently that I think oh. have given this market a little bit of win in its back. So sp- specifically, you know, the price changes on, um, on some super prime, whatever oh. we're calling it, but, you know, the sort of the very low LTV, very high credit score stuff that um, was coming in there. I mean, there was a lot of that stuff the PLS market has been taking on anyway, the economics have been in, you know, those have best exing uh, into PLS for a while, but, you know, there's always a little bit of a an infrastructure investment that you need to make to build a PLS desk. And so I think, I think that, you know, the volatility at FHFA, political volatility at FHFA has had a real impact on the market's, you know, willingness to say, well, what are we investing in? What structures are we building? Where's credit risk going to sit? Um, where does interest rate risk sit? How do we build that? I think that um, what the FHFA did was a very healthy signal to the market that we're not going to do anything crazy. We're not like torching stuff with a, with a, you know, blowtorch. We're not going to also say everything must come to us. We're going to gobble everything up and turn this into one giant mega government e- entity. They're not doing that, but they are saying, um, Hey, we want to have o- other sources of capital. We want those other sources of capital to play a role. We want um, the pricing structure here to reflect, the mission of the agencies, the ability to cross subsidize as, as as much as they can, but to not just have them be, you know, gobbling up the very pristine stuff, low, low hanging fruit, either. And they're really meant to be out helping find the marginal borrower in the marginal community and lend to them. And so it, it was. It is a very healthy move, as 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 almost um, humble and subtle as it may have seemed uh, on its own. I think it was an important market signal. And so yeah. I think PLS is definitely going to play a big role. I I think one thing that people in Washington have done a little bit maybe wrong in the PLS market is it is true to think of PLS as an extension of Fannie Freddie and FHA. So like you've got bank portfolio lending, the GSEs, the government space, and then PLS. And we see it like kind of a spectrum there. It's also important though to look at mortgage PLS as an asset-backed security market cuz it it it's it's just as much in a weird way you very very sort of existentially here uh, it's it's just as much you know credit card CLO ABS auto ABS mortgage ABS it's it's just as much a part of that world as it is a part of the mortgage world and so i think we compare the number sometimes to like the fannie freddie fha number but maybe sometimes a more realistic thing to look at is its role in the asset backed securitization market where it's it's doing quite well. I mean, it's, it's, it's serving its purpose and it's, there's always opportunities popping up. And so it's just a different kind of ABS than some of the others, but they're all have their own, you know, they all have their own idiosyncrasies and their own dynamics. And so, yeah, that, that market's always going to be here. In my view, I think it always has a role to play. I think that there's constant push pull in terms of the governance and the who's, who's, who's got governance, who has oversight, who's in charge of what. And I think that's, that's just part of, you know, how markets evolve
0: yeah no I hope you 're right i mean we we certainly love the idea of a robust private market, anything outside of the government backed or quasi backed kind of mortgage market, obviously the government is meant to be kind of counter cyclical not pro cyclical in some of these markets and when you see things like you know conforming loan limits up to you know a million dollars practically, and the average home price is four hundred thousand dollars and you're you know they're they 're involved in um, guaranteeing Investor loans, second homes, all of these things, you know it's, it's troubling because as we saw when their caps were put in place by uh, Director Calabria at FHFA, you know, the secondary market or, the, or the, the private label market was quick to pick up and, and grab that market, uh, the, particularly the not unoccupied and second homes, and served it handsomely. And it was great because you want to give oxygen to that market, of course, and grow it, not suffocate it. Um, and use the government as, again, that counter-cyclical force when the private sector just isn't there for whatever markets, due to whatever market circumstances, pulled them out.
1: Yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think that, I I think the investor cap was an interesting thing on, you know, sort of the philosophy of it made sense. The operations of it were very difficult and the rollout was pretty bad. So I think that, you know, people conflated all those Things and had difficulty forming an opinion on, and even some of the firms that were benefit that would quote unquote benefit from it were just sort of scratching their heads at sort of how how to make it work and and how to adjust as, and pivot as quickly as they needed to. I think the pricing adjustment made a lot of sense, um, but philosophically, I agree. I don't, you know, I don't think anybody in DC wants to either be in a world where the PLS market is not there, not available to supplement, augment, innovate, and and work around you know, the two behemoths that are Fannie and Freddie, no one's trying to kill it. on the flip side, you know, market share battles, it it depends, you know, there, there, there's healthy competition and there's unhealthy competition. And so it's just kind of a question of like, is the, is the market in a healthy balance? I think right now there's more PLS could do to get a little, to a little bit of a healthy balance. And we're working on a lot of those initiatives, but it doesn't feel like, you know, there's this massive unhealthy tipping of the scales either. So we'll just keep grinding away and evolving and, um, it, it, those relationships are important. I mean, I do think that, e, e, you know, we think of it as G fees and flow business and maybe some cash window business and all that kind of stuff, but who you're doing business with, you know, what type of relationship you have on rep and warrants, what type of relationship you have on the servicing and who the service is going to be carrying borrowers, treating borrowers the right way, knowing that you're, you know, you're in business with someone who is, is going to abide by all the rules. I mean, I think that um, originators and investors, whether the investor be a GSE or be a private, you know, asset manager or insurance company. I mean, I think that those relationships matter, and uh, there's there's it's very healthy when you have many of those, and when you have those across the spectrum, and when everyone's working together collaboratively, for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, not to to get too deep in the weeds, but I agree on those things. But that calls into question things like, you know, the CFPB rule on uh, substantial assistance, which has been you know kind of making some headlines mm. of late. So this applies to whether you're doing government-backed mortgages or private label, MBS, where the, the whole idea was originally, it was first about, you know, basically a primary actor or a secondary actor collaborating with another actor who meant to cause consumer harm. So like if a bad originator collaborated with a bad servicer and ultimately resulted in consumer harm then naturally they were both subject to, you know, civil money, penalties, sanctions, whatever. More recently, it's been moving now to things like, well, you should have known that you were working with a vendor that was going to cause consumer harm, right? So like if they had a bad record of it, then you should have known that um, you shouldn't have been using them because they were going to cause consumer harm. Now there's even more recent things that if you, find yourself even like licensing a software or providing a service that allows for consumer harm, essentially that you, that the service or technology doesn't explicitly prevent someone from yeah. doing a harmful practice, yeah. then you're liable. I mean, yeah. my head is spinning like a top. So, no oh, yeah.
1: It, it, I, I agree. Look, I, I mean, I think, I think we do forget that Several things can be true all at the same time. So it can right. be true. It, it, it can be both true that prior to the creation of the CFPB, the prudential banking regulators had not a wonderful track record at prioritizing consumer protection and consumer law <laughs> compliance. I think that that that's fine for that to be a true statement. I also think it can simultaneously be true to say that you know this new bureau, if it's constantly expanding its authority to try and tap in everything, and it's constantly stretching where liability and legal liability and operational liability and financial liability is, I mean, it can, it could get silly and then it can actually be very, very destructive. So you can, you can, they can wade into, into arenas where, you know, they're misunderstanding some of the fundamental roles of the players involved. And if you're misunderstanding fundamentally the roles of the players involved, then you're, you could run the risk of shutting down a market, which would be the exact opposite of the idea of allowing consumers to have you know, safe and, and, and reliable access. So you know, Dodd-Frank is full of tension. There's tension in there in every, every title. And that's clearly by design. And that's clearly because um, none of these decisions are, are often super black and white. And so you know, it, it's worth, as, you know, we said earlier, you know, having humility is important in the DC arena and in public policymaking. I think that it's, that's for everybody. I mean, I think it's whether you think you're protecting consumers, but really, are you sure you're doing that? Are you are you sure you're not disrupting markets that could be consumed? Can that, that is serving the, the marginal borrower? Um, and I think that sometimes you know we get off kilter there a little bit. So I this not it's not an anti capb rant. At least on my end, I understand you know where the prudential regulators fell down. Um, again, not because of you know there were some civil servant career staff there that cared very much about it i just don't think it ever really got the attention it deserved and so i understand the idea of giving it an elevated role at the same time it's gotta it has to operate with some humility as well because um it can be end up harming the very people that it's trying to help so that's that's just part of the discussion right now um you know there are some signs that i'm not hair on fire or ripping my hair but there are some some things they're doing that um even predate this administration that um you know the NCSLT thing. I mean, that's that's particularly exactly. that's particularly bad if if the idea is you know we're going to completely disrupt the way securitization works. You know, as a mechanism for flexing muscles into more markets. If I'd, I'd prefer a dialogue about you know if it's really if really the idea is who's accountable. You know, who's do we have? Is it possible to have a single point of contact in this market? You know, and if so, whom? Or how do we how do we look at who is making decisions versus who's not making decisions and make sure that if those people that are, are legally empowered to be making decisions, if they make bad decisions, then they have responsibility and liability. No one's arguing with that. But when you start going after people who have no decision-making power in a legal structure, I mean, it just gets sort of strange and um, can certainly have a chilling effect. So we, we hope yeah. that that's not where it ends.
0: Yeah. I mean, and for the, for people who aren't familiar with the uh, NCSLT case, that's the, National Collegiate Student Loan Trust case that started probably in 2017. The interesting thing uh, uh, about it, um, other than the five-year legal uh, battle about it, was that um, for purposes of the allegation, the trust, not even the people working for the trust, I don't even think anyone worked for the trust, and that's right. what was, Correct. was deemed a covered person, air quotes, covered person, uh, for the uh, purposes of uh, CFPB, and what that means is that even though they had no employees and were providing no services to consumers, that they were deemed liable uh, because they were essentially in the business of collecting payments on student loans through a servicer. Well, that seems not that relevant. it will be relevant when you think about you know go back to the financial crisis of you know trustees for private label MBS, look at REITs. Uh, who are investing in MSRs? You know, could this also be applied to them? And does that then further chill that market? Introduce um, you know kind of unmitigatable liabilities, and then ultimately does that affect the availability of credit, the pricing of credit, and all that fun yeah. stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's really weird because it's, you know you've got you've got sponsoring firms that have some you know control over over decisions to hire servicers and that, but then you've got trusts with you know, they were created with a set of algorithmic instructions. You know, money comes from here. It's calculated as, as thusly. And then it's distributed to these people that you have on record. And it's it's a, it's a machine. It's an operating machine. And so I think there's a decent amount of head scratching in that. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an ongoing court case. I want to, you know, um, be careful about that. I'm, I'm certainly not, you know, a trial attorney. So I, I don't want to overset my bounds. But on a political level, uh, surely there's not you know, broad Hill appetite to shut down securitization, you know, over the Bureau expanding its authority into vehicles who were established as part of, you know, this type of legal transaction. I mean, we know that for a fact, because when the the first thing came out, this would have been right around, you know, in 2019, we did a lot of Hill visits uh, on this case. And we weren't asking anybody to intervene in a court case. And they weren't going to do that at all. Um, But it was more about explaining to them what was going on. And I mean, across the aisle for sure there was a lot of well you know i hope the courts get it right that seems a little strange and outside of the scope of um you, you know what the bureau is created for so uh we'll see how that plays out but i i don't it it's it, it certainly there's not political appetite to shut down securitization over this and so um we're working very hard to to make sure that outcome is not doesn't come to pass and i think i think that there's a lot of awareness that uh, hasn't been adequately raised because, as you said, it is a student loan securitization. So NCSLT is for the student loan uh, industry. And so I think some of the other, other industries have just sort of been like, oh, that's not us. But it it, it is and it could be. So um, that's been our mantra over the last couple of weeks.
0: Well, Godspeed. Um, I hope you get that message across and that you're right in terms of the sentiment on the Hill. But uh, moving off that for a minute, so, you know, this is loosely inter connected, I guess, if you think about it, that here we are, we have, you know, mortgage service here is continue to advance billions a month for the whatever's left, I guess, 700,000 or so. Mortgage or still in forbearance. Now there's still potentially more to come, but you know, it's it's still, a, it, it's a fraction of what it was um, at the height, but still a heck of a lot of folks in forbearance and a whole, whole heck of a lot of advancing Going on as required by um, or of the mortgage services, most of 60 out percent, 70 percent are going to be independent mortgage bankers. Now, as origination volumes you know, are obviously sliding as interest rates rise, that takes a, a critical toll on cash flows. Right. Which is really what kind of helped the IMBs, to say the least, um, underwrite the cash advances that they had to make on these mortgage servicing assets during uh, the the forbearance period during the height of COVID and all that, so most people in in the industry I think agree that a liquidity facility for IMBs is critically needed for times kind of like this, right? Um, and that will only come once or with prudential standards and, of course, a prudential regulator. With um, that as a backdrop, I mean, Ginny's you spent some time at Ginny, you looked at GSE reform all of these kind of intertwine again with, with all that as a backdrop, what are your thoughts on prudential standards for independent mortgage bankers? And maybe even, you know, go so far as to say who should be that potential, uh, that prudential regulator?
1: Well, first of all, I do think that the home loan banks do exist as a thing. And I think it was really ridiculous. Um, you know, Watt and Mel Watt and then Mark Calabria, both for reasons that I find still very unconvincing, you know, shoved out IMBs from that system in a way that I, you know, via the REIT mechanism, I, I never really bought the arguments. I mean, I, it was it was it was not really great and appropriate in my view. I think that um, REITs are, you know, critical to the success of this market, and I think a lot of IMBs even had them in order to have access to the home loan bank financing system. Um, you know, if that comes with additional oversight, I think that that is perfectly understandable and justifiable, and they should have worked that out. But. Um, it was disappointing to see the home loan bank system fracture a little bit amongst itself, and then also just be so easily subject to kind of the anvil that came from the FHFA. I think that was missed opportunity on the FHFA's part, and it spanned directors. So that, that that's one thing. I mean, there is some infrastructure already in place that you could borrow from. For financing in the GINI world, I mean, that's, GINI is GINI's different, of course, than Fannie and Freddie in, the, in that the... What, what is a seller servicer in Fannie and Freddie space is an issuer in Jenny. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, the biggest difference would be at 120 days. Well, there are many differences, but one, you know, one of the ones that we saw come to fruition the beginning of the uh, COVID shutdowns is that, you know, in GSE space at 120 days, the responsibility really flips to the GSEs uh, to buy the loan out of a pool. Um, in 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 a Ginny May security, the issuer has to continue to remit PNI and get reimbursed at a lower rate, you know, and then file an insurance claim with the FHA or do an early buyout and use its own balance sheet. And so they're constantly doing sort of cost of capital analysis to figure out what the best is there. Um, so that's a that's a real economic difference between the two. And then you know, Ginny. MSRs financing Ginny MSRs is one way to bridge that gap. So if you're in an IMB and you have Gini MSRs and you're a Gini issuer, to be able to pledge those MSRs and get financing and warehouse lines um, so that you can draw down on that capital uh to, to advance those funds or to get even EBO help. You know, that's a system that when it works, it works great. There are some challenges that are overcome in a variety of different ways. So one of them is that Ginny senses the government entity and really has all power over the servicing strip and so if there's an event of default by the issuer jenny really will swoop in and take that servicing that not that they want to they don't want it they they have no interest in having it on their balance sheet that's really not i I assure you i can tell listeners it's like not something they want to do there's no one at jenny saying well let's grab that servicing let's grab like that is that is really a major major act to either grab or to transfer servicing it's not like they're pounding on, you know, th- they're being their chest wanting to do that, but they have enough authority to do so. And in the event of defaults, you know, a mandate to at least do something, um, st- st- you know, those are strong enough that it makes some financiers leery of financing against Ginny MSR. So they've done a ton of work. Uh, I- I'm not even up to speed on some of the, the more recent developments, but I know that it's a constantly evolu- evolving thing there with some really good, uh, good willed. Um, career servants at Ginny uh, who want to make sure that the acknowledgement agreements that they have, which is just this term for being able to pledge Ginny MSRs in, in exchange for financing, that, they, that they're that they liquid, that they're robust, and that they're meaningful. I think you, where things get really strange, where things get weird, Tim, in the Ginny world, is here's a comment that when I was there, I heard from a couple of people. They would say, uh, you know, there, there would be some incident, an operational hiccup or, you know, some sort of a program violation, even if it's a footfall right not even if it's not we're you know massively undercapitalized and we're doing all these bad things i'm talking about just a a snafu of some sort well it's a government agency so it's set up with some pretty strict rules so you you violate part of the guide you're going to get a notice of violation it's it's just a it's a equals b all the time nothing could happen it doesn't mean shit's kicking out your program that doesn't mean like they are taking over your book it doesn't mean any of that it means you violated the program so you're going to get an nov Mm -hmm. Well, you have a couple IMBs that would say, oh, we can't get an NOV that will, you know, trigger all these, all these, all these, you know, calls, capital calls and warehouse lines and everything goes away. And you it, it, it sort of want to say to them, and in some of the cases I did, you can't be a GINI issuer and say, I can't get a GINI NOV. Like those don't go together. You, if, if you're a GINI issuer and you violate anything in the program guide, you will get an NOV. That doesn't mean your book's getting taken. doesn't mean you air dropping in to steal your MSR, but like... Being part of the program, there's no subjective decision making. It's not like when I was running the agency, they'd come to me and be like, "Would you like to issue an NOV? It's 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 an algorithm, so um, that, that's something that I think you know. I think there's a lot of like the like I said, Jenny's done work to continue to work on the acknowledgement agreements. Um, I do think the program asks a lot more. It, it objectively asks a lot more from its issuers than the GSE program. Um, it offers a lot of benefits and a lot of additional challenges. It's just, you know, the IMBs, I want to understand that, y- you know, you make sure that your financing is robust enough to get you through a cycle or an event because it was a little bit weird to hear things like, we can't get an NOV. I'm sort of like, what do you talk? Well, I-, I don't have to tell you, but it- it's-, it's not a subjective decision. Just- so in-, in any event, that's maybe a little bit of a soapbox from my time there. But, you know, if you're going to be a GINI issuer, just just make sure you can that that your financing lines can withstand it now i you know if 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 there's more for them to do i'd love to be part of a legislative effort to to give uh jenny may the ability to to use its balance sheet to use its capital or to finance these things and i think that they did some really great work actually at the beginning of the crisis i mean i think they really did get innovative and they were the first ones out of the gate i mean well you fhfa was really kind of trying to figure out their philosophical view and if anything was not being helpful. I mean, I think Jenny was, so it's a, it's a, it's a quality program. It just requires, it requires a level of seriousness on all participants to really work. So um, as long as we keep that, you know, then I think the benefits are very, very high.
0: Yeah, no, I I certainly hear you. And they're, they're looking hard at the risk-based capital requirements that they put out, I guess it was last year and looking to reconcile that with some, you know, FHFA proposals around prudential standards. Yeah. And again, yeah, the timing on all this stuff obviously matters. Coordination matters. The last mm-hmm. thing you want or need is, you know, every state doing something, treating liquidity and capital standards differently or different agencies contradicting other federal agencies. So it does feel like you need that one prudential regulator, which, you know, a lot of people think would be uh, certainly, FHFA could be Ginny, but more likely going to be FHFA. Um, CSPS, of course, is is working that's the conference of state bank supervisors yeah. is looking to do that, of course, as well. But um, nonetheless, um, it looks like it's coming, and I think it's coming at the right time. because again because it's that that sort of those standards are required for that facility for that liquidity facility, which is the trade-off. Look, if you yeah. if you're going to be subjected to those prudential standards, then you know, you should be afforded some of the benefits of, you know, what regulated financial institutions get, which is, again, access to the window, access to the home loan bank system. And I I totally forgot about the the REIT component of the home loan banks. And I did did think that that was a lost opportunity because the home loan bank system, for one, is not really well understood. And I don't think it's quite nearly as utilized as it could or should be, given its cooperative structure, yep. regional differences. Um, I mean, they they could be a lot more relevant, but I think by design, they also, or at least their their orientation is to stay low and keep doing what you're doing, stay yeah. off the radar. But yeah, yeah. I do think that they're, they're, those are certainly institutions that can be um, better leveraged to support IMBs. And I, I hope that we're certainly heading in that direction.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I I, I also agree with your point that, you know, to have a very sort of, thoughtful FHFA-led process on, you know, minimum capital and liquidity standards that that has Ginny at the table to give input. But, you know, FHFA maybe takes, says this is what you're going to do if you want to do business with Fannie and Freddie. Here here are the rules. And then here's what we can provide to you um, in exchange. And then have Ginny look at that and say, what of this can we do? What what adjustments, if any, need to be made and where? And then they do a very thoughtful and collaborative process with their issuers. And I I, I really do think that's the intent. I mean, I these are... I think it's a very high caliber group at both right now. I I really do. I mean, I think that you've got some, some really quality folks at Jenny and some really quality folks on the top floor at FHFA who want to do a good job and for whom competence and reliability is a guiding principle in a North star. And I, I don't think there's enough of that in town. I think there's a lot of Don Quixote. I think there's a lot of tilting windmills. I think there's a lot of, you know, legacy building, but I think saying competence and reliability is is like going to be our brand. I think that that's great. And I think you have two agencies that are both there right now. And so uh, we're cheering them on for sure. Yeah, no, I think
0: so. And this will come up, I think probably in, in the next two questions or so, but ultimately a lot of the um, the decision-making going on by the administration and, and, and the agency heads is really trying to, uh, I guess to figure out what's the right balance between achieving your mission objectives versus reasonable risk objectives, right? So mm-hmm. you know at the end of the day, is it gonna be perfectly balanced? no, do you is mission gonna be more important than risk, safety, and soundness? you know we'll we'll find out, but that leads to this softball question of you know we're looking at housing as a center stage of this administration, and not in my adult life can I recall anything quite like this where there's, you know, social aspects, there's quality aspects, there's fairness aspects, heck, there's, there's health aspects, um, all related to housing, housing finance, access to housing. COVID even put it on a, a bigger pedestal uh, than it would have been without, of course, COVID. But so when you think about all these things, and again, just touching on the other topics that we covered that obviously inter- intermix with this is, you know what should the government's role in housing and housing finance be are they you know are they are they doing too much uh, does the mortgage industry end up officially nationalized should it be nationalized mm. like the student loan market and you and i touch on this a little bit and this is one of my you know kind of the things that's always clanking around in my head which is you know, we everybody we want to help everybody you want to be charitable but I, I, again what's the trade off and what's yeah. the right role
1: well look, I mean it is objectively something in the u s that we take very seriously the access, access to safe and affordable housing um and 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 rightly so i'm and, you know happy that we do and glad that we do i don't know if it's if i frame it as much as in too much too little as instead kind of like where to allocate the government's time so very i mean this is very very simplistic but you know, a certain way of looking at it, you could kind of see that you know, to the to the person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, what Washington has in spades is a series of levers to drive down interest rates and subsidize the borrowing cost of homeownership. Between the Fed and their balance sheet, between the GSEs, the FHFA, where they outright just set mips, the GSEs were really actually they set fees too. I mean, it all comes from the FHFA. Um, so there's a lot of mechanisms to subsidize the borrowing cost of homeownership, but a lot fewer to look at homeownership infrastructure, you know, housing infrastructure, affordable housing, you know, access to public transit, uh, really? you know, helping subsidize the building of housing. I, and, 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 and that's, it's a cliche because we've been, we've been talking about it for a while and um, the infrastructure bill, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure framework came and went, um, so I don't want to just rehash, you know, uh, well-tread talking points, but there is something to this idea in my mind um, that uh, Washington does what it's has the levers of power to do, which is just subsidize the borrowing costs and not the infrastructure needed around it. And so I do think we've we've really hit that button a lot. And um, go try and buy a house right now. I mean, there's no inventory and housing prices are going up but there's very few families that can tell you they can even monetize that are doing with it because they can't really afford to move because there's nowhere to move to cost of moving are high and the houses in every, everywhere else is like astronomically high too so unless you're at a stage where you're like ready to capitalize on selling your home and downsize it, it, it it's it's almost had this perverse effect of make, making people feel i think a little bit stuck uh 55% of of people under 30 living with their parents. I mean, if you told me that that was, you know, in Spain, or Italy, I would believe you but in the US, I mean, that's astronomical. I mean, that's really bizarre. And so there's something amiss out there, pretty fundamentally. So and I I'm not trying to I'm, I'm not this isn't an anti government, you know, uh, subsidization of cost. I think that there's a real role to play in it and i and i'm not even it's not being anti-fed it's not being anti-fanny freddy but you do have to say like is this really accomplishing what we want or do we need a new tool like maybe this one's a screwdriver not a hammer to just get back to the clunky metaphor so i I think that i think that we have a little bit of a comeuppance as a society on that point right now um, because I, i really don't think we want to be in a world where um you know americans live in homes that on paper have a lot of value but they can't really move and they're really quite stuck and uh, everywhere else is unaffordable. And um, kids under, not, not even kids, but young adults are still living in their parents' basement. I mean, that is just not, that's, that's not healthy. And then I was just out west. it was in Montana for, for some work stuff. And I mean, like Bozeman, the house is there selling for like $1.5 million, $2 million. And you're like, there's nowhere to go. This isn't Manhattan. You're talking about, you know, the like the last frontier of the country. Things are very unaffordable. So it's, it's, something's off. Um, and so it, it's really there's like a lot of things, I think, in our society right now, you know, whether it be how we're going to approach the pandemic and how we're going to approach the risks of virus versus the risks of you know the continued isolation and all that um i think we need to have a holistic look at sort of housing policy and say are we are we really is the government putting its weight behind the right thing or not and and what are the downstream un- unintended consequences and how do we and how do we how do we methodically cautiously and intelligently you know evolve and turn you can't you can't just rip these can't just say, well, you know, dump the balance sheet, dump the Fed's balance sheet, like, like that's not what I'm proposing, or say, you know, get out of the GSEs, get out of the business, or you know, it's not nothing like that. Um, but I am saying, like, things are pop are bubbling up in the wrong spot, and so, um, you know, we do really need to have a little bit more of a conversation about that. But the problem is, it's it's very desperate, de- disparate. Sorry, not desperate. You know, the Fed has their role. FHFA has this role. The banks have their role. Kind of all all over the place. And Congress is pretty preoccupied with a few other things, like potential war with NATO countries. So, I don't. I'm not optimistic we fix it in the next yeah. couple months. But it's it's a it's an issue for sure. Yeah,
0: no, yeah, I, I agree. And you know, we're good at managing the demand side, the affordability side, but obviously, the supply side is completely different yeah. matter. Even if you were to find, um, you know, the incentive for counties, states to, you know, increase density, find ways to make things more affordable. You have everything from, you know, lack of buildable lots, lack of skilled labor, um, supply chain issues, lumber. uh, I mean, it touches on
1: everything, right? And then you got immigration reform. How do you get a reliable labor market to build the buildings? I mean, A, try and buy a house. They're not available. There's no houses out there right now. And the prices are just bizarrely high. You got kid people who are in their thirties living with their parents, people who are building the homes are, this is, this is a diverse speaking population. I mean, you're talking about Hispanic, very heavy Hispanic population. And we don't have sensible immigration laws. And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who are very, very much building the infrastructure of our country are living in the shadows. And so, yeah, it touches everything in society, which is, you know, for right or for good or for bad, it's not always the easiest thing for the U S to solve is things that are entrenched in multiple aspects, but. Yep.
0: You know. I mean, it gets back to the student loan market again. Like I, like I said, like we almost started the conversation, you know, the things that start to worry me about this is like, if you follow the student loan kind of, you know, case study, which is the government kind of says, you know, banks, you're doing a, you're doing a bad job at managing um, the, the student lending programs. You know what? And I think you're making too much money at it. So why don't you just get out of the way? We'll take it over you know, if you if you have the government now backing 90 odd percent of the residential market, at least in terms of new originations, and then they, you know, for obviously during very exigent circumstances, they uh, realize that they can unilaterally pause mortgage payments and foreclosures for practically two years. And you're thinking, man, okay, well, that's, that's a pretty powerful policy tool. You know, maybe we again, effectively or essentially nationalize housing so that we can really get our arms around this. And then you run the risk of just like in the student loan market where any, I don't want to say chowderhead, but a- any person uh, of dubious uh, uh, background uh, qualifications could get a loan to any dubious school. And you apply that to the mortgage business, right? You could, any person with, um, you know, maybe untraditional credit, no evidence of willingness capacity uh, uh, to pay based on, you know, non-traditional credit. And you start expanding the universe of properties that they can buy. Um, Just the moral hazard of all of these things starts to give me some chills. And we don't know what a government backed housing crisis looks like. Like we saw the SNL one, I get it. We saw the great financial crisis, MBS derivatives. Okay, yikes, that was bad what happens when it's a government-backed mortgage crisis and you assume that the crisis is really a consequence in part of, you know, the erosion of equity. Like you can get away with forbearances, hell, for four years when there's, you know, 60% LTVs, 50% LTVs, but what if there's an event that causes values to come down and that tool just now looks like it's a, it's a negam tool. Can you use that same tool? Does it, I, you know, it's more than my little brain can process. And that's where I start to kind of get anxious about, um, you know, more government involvement versus less government involvement. Um, but
1: well, maybe, uh, maybe we'll, they'll pay us to do another podcast and solve all the problems uh, <laughs> for now. I guess we can agree that there are a lot of them.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, while while I've got you anxious. And I'll close you on, um, on one last thing, which is, you know, at the risk of, you know, provoking your PTSD, <laughs> where where do you think, you know, we end up on, on GSU reform? You obviously spent a god awful amount of time and energy on you know, Corker Warner and Johnson Crapo, you know, at the time, not to be a provocateur, but, you know, a lot of that felt like it was some solutions looking for problems that they were a little bit, um, some people were really trying to over-engineer the solution to it and mm-hmm. you know you've first and foremost you had to do no harm to the housing market mm-hmm. um but do you think this is now kind of like you know a, you should live so long sort of exercise
1: is it yeah, ever gonna it's, it's i mean to be even is lig- literally and figuratively yesterday's news i mean <laughs> like for sure um right so where are we going to be in housing finance reform? right where we are right now that'd be my prediction i mean i think that look, the the, door, the companies went into conservatorship and there was a general agreement that, that had, that posed just, you know, some significant risks, both political and, and financial. And um, there was a lot of momentum behind doing something about that. And the energy was, there was a lot of energy. There was a lot of intellectual energy. And there were a lot of people that said, well, well I'd like to do it, but I've, you know, this, this needs to be part of it, or this needs to be part of it. Like, let's have a guarantee and then let's have the guarantee be very limited and then we'll have corporations that can take on risk. But then if they can take on risk, they need to have capital and how many, you know, like what what's the difference between competition versus race to the bottom? How do you balance that? And then there was the debate over, you know, subsidization for most marginal communities which everybody wants to do but there was disc- discrepancy over what the most effective and efficient way to do it and then some people saw that as a trojan horse for killing housing goals but it was really a just dis- you know in, in my mind a discussion around what's the best way to do it but then, it, the the point of this is that in 2013 and 2014 there was so much energy that every time an issue came up there was a flood of ideas to solve it and address it and fix it and so i i was in this position of sort of corralling those ideas and trying to keep the balance all from this in this sort of bipartisan framework um, that energy does not exist now. I, I think that was, if there was a moment to say, well, what are the goods and the bads and the trade-offs politically that we want to make in terms of reengineering our financial or, or housing financial system? Um, that was the kind of the moment to do it where, where I, where I had passion, I would say on a personal level for that, wasn't so much in the details, but it was the idea that, you know, that congress can get together and harness emotion to say in a good way harness intellectual emotion and intellectual uh engagement to say we have a problem here let's look at solving it let's do so in a way that um respects each other's boundary conditions and points of view um you know congress needs to be able to do that type of stuff or else congress can never fix problems and so then it just becomes an exercise of saying well it's not a you know, I felt like I was watching if Congress couldn't get this done. I'm watching Congress cede its authority to regulators. And because, you know, there's this, this mantra on the Hill. Everybody says, well, the regulators are doing it, but that's really a political decision. So Congress should be doing it. And so you're like, great, then let's do it. <laughs> you know, like it, you can't you can't be upset that the regulators are doing stuff that you're not doing when you're not really going to do it. So and I was driven. And I know some I know many of the senators who were involved in that effort were driven by the idea of like, let's 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 try and work on this and um, and do it in a bipartisan way so that we know that we can do that type of thing. Um, But, you know, keep the balance and respect everybody's views. Um, It's not going to be simple. I mean, it's going to, it's going to be complex. And um, that was then it's gone. It didn't happen. I I don't see, I don't see it as a front burner issue. It was, you know, it was a perfect storm of uh, president Obama's second term. uh, But then you had kind of a split Congress and, and, if there was a moment to do it, it would have been then it came and it went. And so you said, where are we going to end up on GSE reform? The answer is we're going to end up right now. It's yesterday's m- news. I've moved on. Now we're, uh, we're focusing on other stuff.
0: Yeah. I thought, I thought, uh, Trump had the political will, um, and the team to, to get it done. They had seemed to be, have alignment. Uh, but when I interviewed, um, Craig Phillips, I'm sure you've worked with, uh, you know he was just like like we just kept getting so distracted by all of these one-off issues we couldn't stay on script or the president couldn't stay on script that there was just so much randomness and chaos for no wasn't um wasn't purposeful right it just it just kept getting distracted more distracted bigger issues different issues and then they just kind of lost sight and uh and the enthusiasm to get it done basically yeah,
1: there was um <laughs> there were some big issues. I, I, I yeah, there was. Uh, I, I remember. Yeah, it was fighting for airtime against tax reform and sanctions and all that stuff is a difficult thing to do. Even yeah. when you have an administration that you know the, had. A, I mean, with Obama, you had people very senior in the White House. You know that had a lot of interest and appetite behind it. um Even the president at the time, and it's still, you know, it's difficult to keep focus. I think that went in spades probably for the trump administration and it was his first term and is up for re-election and all that kind of stuff so yeah it didn't happen um i was i that effort i i gotta tell you i i did not see us coming having a high likelihood of succeeding uh but that's a different podcast
0: yeah 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 no and i understand craig phillips and um steve mnuchin were uh you know pretty easy guys to work with on the subject so i'm surprised that that didn't uh Land in a better place. I'm being facetious, obviously. I, I've worked were... for
1: Craig. I've worked for Craig and I've worked with Craig. Working with Craig was lovely. I'll just leave it at that. I enjoyed working with Craig.
0: Yeah, no, I'm with you. I, I like Craig a lot, but I can imagine, um, yeah, there would there, be a fair amount of chafing if you were subordinate to, to Craig. But I think now with the GSEs, I think you're right, that, that there is no political will, that they're now viewed as real, you know, primary Uh, instruments of public policy tools for public policy and with you know build back better not even build back smaller it's just it's pretty much toast and certainly the housing agenda that goes with it so it'll be curious to see how much and how the gses are used to kind of fill those mission objectives um you know within the confines of conservatorship right while still maintaining the safety and soundness requirements i think it's a delicate dance and i'm I'm hopeful that they can they can get them done get it done, but I'm also afraid that when the confines of conservatorship become too great and in too great a conflict with mission objectives, then one's gotta give. And this is a um, this is a very impassioned uh, administration around mission objectives. And um so I'm just hoping that the the consequence of that is not um so uh inconsistent with the confines of conservatorship and safety and soundness that they don't find themselves in receivership in order to basically break those chains and to be able to do more mission work. Um, but that again is for another, I pocket. don't
1: think the I don't think the GSEs are going into receivership. I think that just to be clear, um, I, I, enough promises have been made to the bondholders <laughs> that I, 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 yeah, I think that's why I feel pretty confident that we're going to be right where we are the next time we do a podcast.
0: All right, well, that's good. Well, let's leave you on a, on a, on a happy note and try to Thank shake you. that last one off, which is, so just imagine if you, were, were, you weren't at SFA, you never got into mortgage finance, and again, no one ever plans to get into this crazy business, I, I included. What's, uh, what's your dream gig? What would you be doing?
1: Vegas DJ? <laughs> Vegas DJ? Kick, kick, uh, world champion, field, kick, DJ? MMA, kickboxer. No, uh, you know, God...
0: Um well, you read physics for yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. Uh, well, it, I have it, no idea the hell you take that.
1: So in the realistic realm, technologist, maybe assuming <laughs> I cannot be the Nats closer, uh, <laughs> right, and assuming that I cannot be um you know an MMA champion because genetics are what they are. Um yeah, I, I I kind of wish that if I had a second life, I could be a nuclear physicist. I mean, I I I think oh. that. The philosophy what, the state of of physics uh, um, right now is so advanced, and the discoveries that we're making about our universe are so fascinating that they have such deeply profound philosophical implications what what is the meaning of life? what does it mean to be here? Um, are we alone? you know what is consciousness like that stuff it, it it's like I almost, I almost think you can't even analyze that outside of the realm of an understanding of sort of, of physics, because, um, it describes so much phenomenon around of our universe and our world that it just says, it's just, it's just a very meaningful part of those discuss discuss questions, those questions. And as somebody who's tends to be too cerebral and analyzing things too deeply and, and is always kind of asking like, what's the point and what's the meaning, um, I found myself very drawn to trying to find some, un, you know, deeper on the, the 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 comfort that comes in a deeper understanding of how this stuff works. I mean, is it comforting to know that the sun's going to turn into a red giant and swallow the Earth in five billion years? Um, I don't know. Maybe it 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 certainly tells you if you ever worry about the wrong thing on a daily basis and the wrong things bothering you, you remember that like literally this is all temporary. Um, not sometimes that can be calming. And, and so, I don't know, I find uh, some of the discoveries that are being made now to be, to be quite cool. Um, so I wish that I could be a nuclear physicist and then take all that intellect from the, understanding them, the mechanisms of the fundamental building blocks of life and particles, uh, subatomic particles, and then use that to maybe even more deeply understand why it is we're here and what we're supposed to be doing. That that's pretty cool to me. So maybe well, in my but- next life, maybe in my next
0: life. I'm pretty sure based on that explanation that if I was your uh, psychiatrist, I could probably get another session out of that, just from going from the <laughs> DJ to a hard pivot to a nuclear physicist. So, another uh,
1: session, Tim. I'm putting my session. psychiatrist children through school. Like, <laughs> this is, they're getting plenty of sessions. <laughs> Thank you, man. It was a lot of fun, as
0: always. I do appreciate it. And there's uh, no shortage of material for the next one. So,
1: Yes, sir. All right. Look
0: to it. All right, brother. Be good. Be good. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, visit us at citusamc.com. Or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.